Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection. We depend on you, our community of listeners, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com/suryadas and you can either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link. We get a small percentage of all of your purchases. Or you can go and sign up for a free trial with audible.com. Your support will allow Lama Suryadas to continue to illuminate the timeless Tibetan wisdom. So, practicing, seeing through, being through treachery, Dzogchen sky gazing with the three skies, the three gazes, the sky, the inner space of mind or magic mirror of mind, and just being, mingling beyond outer, inner, and innermost, just letting be, releasing everything as it arises, like waves on the sea, while the sea never leaves its bed, the depths are unmoved, unchanged, like ripples on the stream, so superficial, like flotsam and jetsam going by on the river, just watching it, not picking and choosing and interfering and evaluating or trying to control it. This is how we practice in the view of things just as they are, the great perfection beyond perfect and imperfect, good and bad, just as they are, isness, suchness, facticity of being. Comes the meditation of non-meditation, of getting used to leaving it as it is, Leave it as it is and rest the weary mind, as Long Champa said. Leave it as is and rest the weary mind. See through everything, just be through everything and remain at home, at ease, luminous, radiant, unhindered. Don't get caught up in the fickle changes of the mind, like the shadows playing over the mountaintops. Just rest like a mountain like the sky, like a mountain, like the ocean, which never leaves its bed. The three great, leaving it as it is, is I discussed yesterday or the day before the choke shock. The four great, leaving it as it is, is view, open, vast, inclusive, big picture, like the sky, with room for everything, all kinds of weather, without being space, never changes, even though the weather changes. It's a figure ground shift, whether you think you're the small or the big, whether you're overwhelmed by everything or you just see these momentary risings as hood ornaments on your vast vehicle, your gigantic gas-guzzling Vajra Cadillac <laughs> that doesn't need gas, that goes by itself. So the fearless master Jigmalink was saying everything arises like ornaments and adornments. The more arisings, the more enlightenment. Isn't that fearless bodhisattva warrior talk? Not trying to calm and clear your mind and just be quiet or get away from it all. It's all like ornaments and adornments. The more arisings, the more enlightenment, the more awareness, the more self-liberations going on. Things arising and releasing by themselves. Imaho, wonderful. Enjoy the endless procession of the Dharmakaya awareness as he sings. 
It's all grist for the mill of Dharmakaya awareness. It's all nourishment for the bonfire of Rigpa awareness, as fearless Jigmilingpa sings. It's all food, nourishment for the bonfire of this awareness. So not suppressing anything on one hand and not being carried away by the arisings and appearances and endless chains of discursive thinking. Not getting tangled up in the barbed wire of discursive thinking. Thoughts are a poor master, but a good servant. Good servant, but poor master. Problem is we're too much under its power. That's why I founded the 12-step program for Thinkaholics. Thinkaholics Anonymous. If you too, like me, have admitted that you're powerless before the power of your thoughts and you need to rely on a higher or deeper inner power, you're already a member of this 12-step path. <laughs> I think all looks anonymous. So the four choke shock, great leaving it as it is, is the gazing and the releasing and the allowing and the wisdom of allowing Openness and awareness, inseparable, seeing through all the dreamlike, illusory, momentary, impermanent, ownerless, or selfless appearances, phenomena, and noumena, mind stuff, and resting in the view, nothing more to do, whatever arises, aware of it, aware of feelings in the body, physical sensations, aware of thoughts, making the distinction, the subtle distinction between th thoughts and awareness like ripples and the sea. We can be aware of thoughts. Thinking is just an object, like sounds, sights, smells, all the objects of the six senses, aware of thoughts. We could also be aware of not thought, no thoughts. We could be aware that we're sleeping and dreaming, lucid dreaming, they call it today, Tibetan dream yoga, over a thousand years old practice. So discerning between sem, thinking, conceptual mind, small scope, personal, egocentric, and rigpa, or pure presence, awareness, the bigger Buddha mind that it's part of, like the bubble and the sea. The bubble is nothing but sea and seawater all the way through, but it's so smaller in scope in various ways than the sea. Nor do we have to burst the bubble or slay the ego, as some religionists say, slay the ego. The bubble is in the sea after it bursts. It's still in the sea. Nothing has really changed. So when we see through ourselves in that way, we don't have to slay the ego. We just have a better perspective on it, more identified with the sea. It's a figure ground shift than the little bubble so helplessly thrown about by the currents of the sea. Again, hood ornaments. Rather than being overwhelmed by the things, quote, coming at us or coming up in our mind. So if you like the sky, this is relating to how we practice the meditation and non-meditation. If you like the sky, leave it as it is. Meditation of non-meditation, getting used to that, leaving it as it is, is enough and more than enough. Undo the habit of overdoing, just being. Leave it as it is, unperturbed, unshakable like a mountain. And action, inexhaustible, appropriate as needed, like the ocean's waves. If there's wind, there's waves. No wind, no waves. No karmic wind, no needs, no waves. No calls for help. No need to be a busybody missionarizing helper, shoving the truth down people's throat, trying to help people that don't want help, like a big intervention, constant interventions. Just 
As Buddha said, teach when asked, go where invited. Don't proselytize and missionaryize. Maybe things are fine as they are. Or people aren't open to it or asking for it. Don't shove the truth down their throats. So action, conduct like the ocean waves and the results, it's the natural state as it is. Great peace, flow, not static. Proactive Buddha activity, natural peace, great peace. Great peace beyond the dichotomies of noise and quiet. Inner stillness beyond the dichotomies of movement and still. Like fulfillment is beyond the dichotomies of happy and sad, the emotional roller coaster. You can still be happy and fulfilled, you know, content and fulfilled even when you're sad. Of course you should be sad when bad news comes, when something happens to your loved ones or in the world. Happy and sad fluctuate. But we could, we're bigger than that, those momentary emotions. That's why Buddha called this world Jambudvipa, the rosebush land, beautiful to look at. Look at means smell, sense, taste, touch. Beautiful to sense, but thorny to grasp, to hold on to. Jambudvipa, the rosebush land, beautiful but thorny to grasp. Or, as we say in the Mahayana and Vajrayana, this Saha world, Saha means floating or dewdrop, like a dewdrop, so tenuous, beautiful, shiny, crystalline, transparent, beautiful, liquid, flowing, but tenuous, just about to pop or burst or disperse or get soaked up or evaporate. This dewdrop world, we often see this in Japanese poems about wabi and sabi, the evanescence of things. This floating world, you, you see sometimes captioning a painting, floating like a dewdrop. It's a translation of saha, dewdrop-like. Like dewdrop floating on the current could burst any time. So not getting attached to things that we in any case can't hold on to. Letting them go, letting it go. A little less grasping, a little less irritation. A little less grasping to things that are in any case passing through our fingers. All these impermanent, ownerless, or selfless phenomena. Not being a control freak. My contention is that control freakism is the biggest religion in the world. And most of us still believe in it. That was how we will find what we want and need. Again, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Seeking happiness and creating more confusion and suffering for ourselves through unskillful or ignorant activities. So, the four great choke shock, leaving it as it is in our meditation, and observing how things arise and fall, how they appear and disappear in our mind or in our body, how physical sensations arise, and we're aware of them, and then they pass away. Sometimes if we scratch the itch, it just continues, and we continue scratching and make a big boo-boo and have even more wounds. I like to remember my first real uh, meditation teacher, Gawankaji, in India. 
in his 10-day meditation course in a Jain monastery in the middle of the desert in Rajasthan, the Jain holy mountain, Mount Abu. And it was, not, it was very strict, 10 or 12 hours a day of silent meditation, sitting without moving and no chanting, and one 45-minute Dharma teaching at night, and no eating afternoon and things like that. And we were all sleeping in, on group like sardines in the meditation hall and on the verandas and on the roof and in the basement. And we had to learn to sit like that and meditate. And it really made, it's how I learned to meditate really, no matter what, in 1971 through this 10-day insight meditation course by Goenkaji, Sharon Salzberg's teacher. And there were mosquitoes and you would be sitting there having vowed not to move with your eyes closed in his meditation tradition. And the mosquitoes would be buzzing around. You know, you're in India, it's hot, it's moist, it's green, it's humid, there's millions of mosquitoes and other kind of bugs scuttling around. You're not, you're not supposed to move, not to mention swat them. No swatting, Buddhists, bodhisattvas, compassionate ones. But who says you can't scare them off when they land on your nose, you know? <laughs> well, you're supposed to keep your eyes closed, but if that doesn't work, you know, a little, what is it, bewitched action. <laughs> you know, a little nose wrinkle. If that doesn't work, <sighs> try to blow them off. I'm not moving. Even worse if they're on your ear. Actually, it's worse on your nose because it's more sensitive. I'm an expert at this. But when they're on your ear, your ear is harder to get. You know, you, you kind of try to blow out of the side of your mouth. <laughs> or, or move your ear. Anybody good at that? <laughs> but Kawankaji, he had a different strategy. Of course, because he was the master. In his loving-kindness teachings, he combined it with how, you know, this kind of meditation of apasana insight, naked, just aware of what sensations and letting them go. He said, another approach could be, he spoke English, another approach, I'm not going to imitate his accent, but he said, another approach could be, wish that little mosquito a good drink and a safe flight home. <laughs> that would be loving-kindness, compassion reaction. Wish it a, a good, a, a nice drink, you know, a nice meal and a safe flight home. I mean, you know, it's not going to kill you. He, he always used to say it was a wonderful teaching. It was just, it was inconceivable, but it was another alternative. You know, you could, one could get to that. Like Patrul Rinpoche, the enlightened vagabond of Tibet, in one of his famous stories, some, let's say, monks, overdressed monks with all of their robes and brocade vests and all, and carrying books on their back, found Pacha Rinpoche naked lying in the middle of the forest because he lived in the forest, remember? He never slept inside. He didn't accumulate things. He didn't have an altar and a temple, and although he could have, he taught in all the great temples and he taught the kings and dukes and noble women of Tibet. 
They invited him everywhere. But he liked to teach outside and things like that. Anyway, he was lying naked in the sun, in the summer sun, in the short summer of Tibet, in the middle of a small clearing in the middle of the forest. And he was covered with um, mosquitoes and ants. And the monk said, what are you doing? You crazy old dog. Old dog was his Dharma nickname. He signed many of his poems, old dog. So they, you know, what are you doing, you crazy old dog? Meaning, like, why don't you be spick and span monks like us? Walking around, you know, dressed like um, the king of, uh, I don't know what, England. They didn't say. Never heard of England, I'm sure. What are you doing, old dog? He says, I'm just lying here. This side's almost done. I'm going to turn over in a minute. <laughs> you know, I feed the mosquitoes on the other side when this side is done. <laughs> As I said, tales that could and should have happened. Who knows if it really did? But the, what's the moral of the story? It's, you know, giving yourself to others. Crazy as it may sound, it's like a hyperbole, a parable from the Bible you know, turning a few loaves into enough to feed a thousand fishes or whatever the story is. <laughs> it's not my specialty. <laughs> it means that the Dharma, the truth, the light feeds us in a way that ordinary things can't and can't be measured. Panacean virtues, paramita, not just a little tip or a little money to the panhandler to get them out of the way, but noble giving, self-giving, caritas. So there are many stories like this of how people have given themselves, even Buddha in a past life, supposedly, they say when he was a prince, he saw a starving tigress during a drought with her five little cubs pulling at her dugs and not getting any milk. And it bothered him so much that he opened his own vein and laid down and let them drink and kill him and so the six of them could live. Now, I'm not advising that to you. I'm just saying these are the hyperbolized stories, parables from ancient times for an oral culture to get the point, to think of others before or as well as oneself. So... Not getting overly invested in this floating, dewdrop-like world, so beautiful but so thorny to grasp and try to hold on to, this impermanent, ownerless, ungovernable world. Un uh, ownerless is another translation of anatta, no self. I like that. Like the thoughts and the feelings, and to say just arise and pass away. They're not necessarily mine, my thoughts, you know. If you think they are, I want to know where they came from and who gave them to you. Aren't they very much like your, whoever you learn from's thoughts, your parents' thoughts, your culture's thoughts, your, how you uprought thoughts, your upbringing thoughts and feelings and reactions? So what is this my that we're so invested in? Anyway, that's another subject. So we're talking about to leave it as it is and see it as it is and so forth, a view of meditation. We'll get to the action tomorrow and in integrating Dharma in daily life. Regarding the view, meditation, action, and result, Mipam Rinpoche, the great indomitable Mipam of 120 years ago, the great non-sectarian Mipam Rinpoche, Manjusri's incarnation, who drew an ah with his finger on my 
original first Dzogchen master, Khandra Rinpoche's tongue, when Khandra Rinpoche was four years old in a cave in Tibet. And his father brought the boy to meet the master and get blessed. And Mipa drew an ah, the symbol of Dharma, on his tongue. And Khandra Rinpoche, and everybody always says that's how Khandra Rinpoche became the great master that knew the whole Khandra, Tibetan canon, Khandra by heart. So this great Mipam Rinpoche, Khandra Rinpoche died in 1975, and he's presently reborn as Tuku Minjur Dorje, Urjim Rinpoche's grandson, Chukinima's brother, uh, nephew. This great Mipam Rinpoche said, as for the view, that's very important to glimpse, Ngutri, introduction to the true nature of mind, or your true nature, your Buddha nature that your nature and Buddha nature are inseparable. Notre introduction. And not just being introduced to it, but recognizing it. Absolutely crucial. That's the beginning of the true path. Until then, just kind of like throwing rocks in the dark, not knowing where the target is. But after this introduction, and more important, this recognition, then you know where, where, which way dawn's going to rise. You know which way to face. These are just images. Then second, the meditation. Selzok, perfecting the ability, perfecting the skill of seeing it as it is and leaving it as it is. So the view, that highest intuition, or knowing the great perfection that one needs not add to it or subtract from it. And then the meditation of non-meditation, Selzok, perfecting the skill, maturing it. Practicing, exercising rikpa, exercising this recognition, seeing through things and seeing how that works. And then tempe tub, attaining unshakable, irreversible stabilization through repetition, the second one. Practicing the skill of rikpa recognition, of seeing through things and not being deceived by appearances and feelings. Attaining great, unshakable stabilization. So the first one is like an enlightenment experience. The second one is like getting more enlightened by practicing, maturing, actualizing it, trying it out, making it one's own, taking it in, making one's own, integrating it. And third, where it carries you, it is you. You don't have to really take it in or integrate it anymore. You're, it's you and you're it. There's no separation. As it says in the Hindu Upanishads, God, Atma, God, Guru, actually says Brahma, Guru, and Atma are one. Let me translate. God, Master, or Teacher, and the Practitioner are one. So, to translate into Buddhist jargon, Buddha, or primordial Buddhiness, or Enlightenment, and the Teacher, or Master, or Mentor, the Conduit, and the Practitioner are one from the beginningless beginning. That's saying a hell of a lot. Quite different than the general progressive path of starting from the prison of samsara and spending many lifetimes schlepping to enlightenment, crossing the boiling ocean of suffering and getting to the far shore nirvana. So this is the swooping down from above view. But still there's some progress to be made from the introduction or recognition to the checking it out and ascertaining with great certainty the path. So that's why it's called the ground is the glimpse, the view. The path is the practice path. And the result, 
the stabilization or the unshakable realization. I hope that's clear. I just want to add that in to complete most of the uh, material I want to present here. The basic, the core, the real, the skeleton, the main outline of Dzogchen view meditation and action, the great perfection. So any questions, please? Yes, artist boy. Uh, my name's Craig. Craig. Um, you uh, just a moment ago mentioned not being um, overwhelmed by uh, bad things that happen. And you, I didn't I, say bad things, by whatever comes. Tragedies. But go ahead. Something to that effect. Yeah. Um, and you said, uh, you know, we're, we're more than that. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Well, if you look into who's being overwhelmed... You know, is it a, a really a tsunami, a tsunami, or is it just some little mosquitoes? Like, are you overwhelmed by the fact that a mosquito is biting you and going to drain your blood and you're going to die? I mean, that's kind of, the, you know, enough to kill? It's, it's not, is it really a kill or be killed situation? That's kind of like being overwhelmed. Or are you overwhelmed by noise and the cacophony of daily life? As many of us feel... That's, you know, being overwhelmed. But if you could be centered or if you could come back to who is experiencing that, then you might get back in your seat driving the big Cadillac and then you just see, you know, the, these things as hood ornaments or rain on the windows or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of pain and suffering. and No, I, it, tell me. You know. Is there? You? You have? I read about it. or You read about it? it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you read about it. So it can be overwhelming, or it can yeah. be. So maybe you could practice not reading about it for a while and see how that is, just to get in touch with another. You know, that it's not always everywhere. Totally, the whole story. You read about it, so maybe you're too much of a news junkie. Maybe it's time for a news fast, however brief and refine yourself that you can live without the news. And then you go back to the middle way, you know, some news. Not all the time. Where's David Green? He's a wily one. He slips in and out. David Green in the back there, I see his, his stuff. Maybe he achieved the rainbow body. Or maybe he's in the rainbow bathroom. His teacher, his guru was Hilda Charlton who was not a charlatan at all, Hilda Charlton, a woman, American, who lived in India in the 50s and 60s and came back to New York in the late 60s. She was kind of like Baba Ramdas at that time, very popular guru in New York. She wore a sari. She was single. She was holy. She was, had satsang and darshan and all. Anyway, she... You should really get this story from him. Whether she made them vow, advised them vow, or what? Not to read newspapers. Now, I'm not advocating that. That doesn't seem like the middle way to me. But that's why, because people kept telling her about how bad everything was and how it's making them crazy. And, you know, every time they open the newspaper, you read about 50 people that were killed in a Shiite mosque over in some other country or, you know, a big factory fire or a forest fire in another part of this country or whatever. And that's important to know and that's relevant. But do you have to know that every day? Do you have to know that every part of every day? Do you have to get the 6 o'clock news, the 9 o'clock news, the 12 o'clock news, the 6 p.m. news, and the 10 or 11 o'clock news before you go to bed, besides while you're driving around or listening? 
or the flashes that come on your computer screen, you know. I mean, how much news is enough news? And it's mostly the bad news they publish, not the good news. Why aren't, you know, where's the good newspaper? I want to subscribe. Yeah, so I get, you know, I don't know, Tricycle, I don't know if that's the good newspaper, but Utney Reader, um, I, you know, look for some positive things. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to ditch the uh, New York Times app on my iPhone. <laughs> Whatever you say. Uh, uh, Whatever you say. A news fast is a good practice, even if it's just for half a day or a day or a few days. You see, you don't die. But of course, you know, in the bigger picture of being a citizen and a person in life, not just a monk or a nun in sequestered, cloistered retreat, you know, we want to be an informed citizen and know what's going on a little enough and care about the community we live in in the world and, you know, vote. You know, if you don't follow the news, how do you vote? If you don't vote, how can you get away with complaining all the time about the politicians if you don't vote? <laughs> and so forth. Everything's connected. Also, now that I've more than made my point and hammered you again and again, I want to give you a little, a little out here just to lighten up. David's still not here, so I don't care. It serves. So David told me, David's a businessman. He's a contractor. He's a contracting business and a family and lives in Queens for many years, married for like 30 years or more, and has kids, grown kids. David said, so he's, he hasn't read the newspaper since then, since like 1970. He only subscribes to Time and Newsweek. <laughs> oh, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, some <laughs> circular, not the j paper, because he has investments. So I said, David, do you think that's what Hilda meant? And he said, I don't know. That's what she said. No newspapers. <laughs> I said, <laughs> you know, on behalf of Hilda and all other gurus, bang my head on the table. <laughs> so don't take it too seriously, but understand what we're talking about, you know, like how it affects you and what's too much. And some people want to be more informed or maybe they're working in certain fields. And you're an artist, so you're in your studio every day. Maybe you don't necessarily need to be as touching the news as somebody else who might be, uh, I don't know, a judge or, a, you know, in involved with, or a social studies teacher in school or something. But I do think the question is about overwhelm. How can we cultivate more centeredness and equanimity and uh, be here now no matter, and find the still eye in the turning, in, in, the, in, the, in the hurricane, the eye in the hurricane, where we can, you know, then we can operate from. Yes. <laughs> I just uh, couldn't, Will. Resist, couldn't resist saying, um, I really agree with what you said about the news. I, I have a very weak mind and really influenced by uh, the environment, particularly if it's negative. And uh, I hear something disturbing, it'll rattle around inside my head forever. So I, I don't subscribe to any papers um, at well, all. You, you live on an island way yeah, out I'll, in Hawaii, yeah, so not, you make your life choices, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I used to live in the Bay Area, but uh, even there I didn't, 
I didn't read the news, I didn't watch TV. Every time I, I relapsed and, and watched something, it was the same, you know, different yeah. murder setting, but the same story. That's why H.D. Thoreau, my erstwhile neighbor in Concord, Massachusetts, said, I don't want to tune into the daily news, I want to tune into the eternities. Yeah. It's a great so, saying, too. it lasted 200 years. <laughs> it's always been an issue. How much yeah. you want to be with the news, which is pretty much always the same, and how much with the eternities? Do we ever spend any time reading the eternities? And the other problem is one way to uh, uh, adjust to the constant bombardment is just to get desensitized, mm -hmm. which I don't think is very good either. Yeah, yeah. but there's always that. Um, there's I, so many ways. I'm, uh, I, I really enjoyed your talk. I'm, I'm going to quit in a minute. I'm thinking of writing a... Uh, uh, a Dharma uh, adventure comic, and um, I want per get permission to use some of your images. I really like the uh, the SUV sized Cadillac with the hood ornaments. Whatever you like. Uh, thank you. I wish I could draw those cartoons myself. So go ahead. <laughs> well, I got somebody else. I never had an original thought in my life. Anyway, I'm just oh, channeling. That's, that's not true. But yeah. I, you know, I'm just a big funnel, and and yeah. re rent a mouth. I'm going to get you to contribute. <laughs> Questions? Yes, in the back there. Brenna, so patient. Hi, I just want to say I'm so enjoying this week. Thank you for your teachings. Um, just off this is kind of just a, You're welcome. A, a question, but also I think something that we can all relate to. Um, I'm a social activist and work in um, severe environmental problems and campaign work in politics, too. And so my work is very campaign goal-driven, um, but it's also incredibly rewarding to make a meaningful impact in people's life and um, help stop things that are affecting their health and, and their life. But I, I still have to balance that with this, with this work because I get incredibly burnt out, right. as one can imagine. But I think we'll, give just... you a we'll give you a gong for that. Thank you. So I, I'm glad I, to see a young person talking like this. First, socially engaged and politically. There seems to be a great apathy or giving up in certain parts of the recent generations, maybe for good reason. But I know there's also tremendous youth interest in things, especially the environment and other good things. But thank you. Thank you. I, just, I think it's the words that you were saying just about finding, <clears throat> finding that balance. Because at the same time, why we don't, I definitely had that, that news addiction <laughs> and had to balance that. Um, you know, whatever your Dharma action is, which can be so varying, you know, yeah. but it's, it's, it's Even just like good way. parenting. Good parenting exactly. is making a better world, right. let's face it. Right. Yeah. Making really good bread for your village, whatever it is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Thank you. There are actually some Buddhist meditation retreats, probably mindfulness retreats, I think they're called, for social activists you know, around in this country now. Because of that, what you said, that process, specifically reaching out to them, offering to them, giving them scholarships and all. Questions? Yes. Yes. Um, well, I have a practice question, kind of related to what we're talking about also. Um, as we're going through our mundane struggles, et cetera, and 
we're developing our practice, can we kind of stop and then concentrate on something different? I mean, just think about compassion or loving kindness or just kind of put it on hold and then come back to it again. Sometime when we're less stressed out or I know what the goal is to become less stressed in the end, but as we're working along the practice path, can we just, that, I find that's what I do myself a lot. Well, you're asking me if you can? It seems like uh, you already can. Is that Are you asking? Is that helpful to, to just stop, kind of say, okay, this isn't working out for whatever reason? Sure. And, and just you're, go on to something different. And you're, you're the, you have your hands on the steering wheel and your foot on the gas and the brake, and you're looking out and through your windshield, you know, and you have to assume responsibility for whatever you're doing and evaluate to a certain degree, not every second, double thinking, you know? Like you can't spend every minute of your marriage or whatever thinking about whether you should stay together or not. But there's a time for evaluation, certainly, I guess. So are you talking about in the middle of a sky gazing session, whether you should stop and think about compassion? Or you're saying in the middle of your week or your life, you should stop sky gazing for a week or a month and practice compassion and loving kindness or some other thing? Well, well really, it, specifically in, with the question right now is during your meditation session, you haven't got enough sleep or whatever, something physical, could be whatever, just a bad day at work. And you want to have a good meditation session, but it's not working out. It's always, it's always possible to avail yourself of any of the many skillful means of the Dharma. And that's important to say very explicitly. Why? Because if you want to have a good meditation session and you cut those off as a possibility, what will inevitably happen? You'll find some other unskillful practice to do, like, you know, getting drunk or picking up the phone and just calling people that you don't need to call or turning on the TV and just leaving it on and channel surfing in the middle of the night. You know, those are also practices. If it's not working out, you will do something else probably. Okay? So you certainly can and may and maybe even should. But be very responsible. Whenever it feels uncomfortable, don't get restless and just jump to the, the, another thing. That's, a, another, that's the downside. You know what I'm saying? So sometimes practice seems like it's not going very well or you're bored or sleepy. That's a good time to do something to wake yourself up and keep going or start again fresh, you know, or do something more active like chanting or other practices people do, like bowing or mantra chanting or praying or, you know, other things. That's fine. But, you know, sometimes you just perk yourself up like instead of shouting pet, which is something external you can do to wake yourself up like we did a couple days ago, you could just do the inner pet Let's say you're in a group where you're sitting on the long train ride to, you know, you just go, did you hear that? <laughs> or you take a breath, or you look at the sky and breathe out. And, oh. You know, mirrored sunglasses are good for this, walking around in the day. <laughs> <laughs> then nobody at, at the, me the meeting you're in knows what you're doing. You know, maybe you're a judge. In, in, in the courtroom and they ha have a lot of things going on and you just have your mirrored sunglasses and you're just going, ah. 
Oh, whatever, you can adjust to your situation. <laughs> That's why we swoop down from above with the view while climbing up from below through relative practices according to our needs and inclinations. So I balance a meditation session with chanting and breathing and then just sky gazing and then, you know, Sometimes I go back to chanting and breathing or praying. You know, if you're a devotional type, then that's a good way to raise the energy. Do some praying or guru yoga or whatever your devotional or chanting, you know, whatever works for you. Compassion, loving kindness, radiating and reabsorbing, tongue line, whatever, you know. Otherwise, you're just sitting there dozing as if you're getting paid by the minute. <laughs> Oh, yeah, 15 minutes to go until I can punch out. You know, drool. <laughs> Quality, not quantity. So, as usual, the middle way. I think the middle way is Buddha's greatest teaching. Not too tight, not too loose, not too fixated on time or number of mantras or prayers or whatever you're doing, and not too loose, like restlessly, sloppily, undisciplined, just following every whim and impulse. That's also contraindicated. Uh, last question? Anybody? It's, yes. It's probably I don't really have a question, but um, some of us, like this, some of us don't live in caves or islands, and most of us have um, the violence in our back gardens kind of thing if you're aware in any kind of way, in one form or another. And I think um, whether you're involved like Rena and mm -hmm. to you, which is fantastic. I love the young Isn't people around yeah. and uh, doing all this work. But one way or another, you have to make some kind of peace with it. And you might mm -hmm. theoretically know the answers, right? And you can go back to them and back to them. But the struggle is finding the balance. And uh, that's... Yeah. Or remembering to find the balance, I think. Right. And that's Which a process. You don't just find the balance and then stay balanced. You know, I always say this. It's like riding a bike. It's a good example because I'm sure we all remember most of us can ride a bike. Most of us remember, you know, probably somebody taught you, but still you have to find your balance. Right? It's not something they can give you. You have to find your balance. Like riding a horse, you have to find your seat, which is not the saddle. On a bike, you have to find your balance. And you do that by always a little adjusting. And even if you have your balance, even if you're an expert, even if you're, you know, I won't say any, I won't mention any experts because they're all complicated. But, you know, even if you're an expert, <laughs> always a little adjusting to keep your balance so you don't fall over. If you're in a body cast, you can't ride a bike because you can't adjust at all. That's not balance. That's rigidity. So similarly with life or our practice or anything, really. That's why I, I love Buddha's teaching of the middle way, not too tight and not too loose. And it doesn't all have to be on the yellow line either in the middle of the highway. There's a lot of lanes. Just let's try to stay out of the ditches on either side, like nihilism and materialism. And I, I guess I have a real struggle in uh, living in an urban area. And uh, Where do you live? I live in Toronto, um, just north. And I thought you were going to say New York or some really tough city. <laughs> well, hey. <laughs> okay, I'm just teasing uh, you. But just in, in terms of um, 
unless you're holed up in your own little studio home and with the computer off and the news off, you're walking by. Well, his studio is in Brooklyn, so let's not exaggerate. I'm sure the bullets are flying in the I mean, window. I you don't have to go anywhere. He probably anywhere. has a boarded up windows. I mean, you, you have an act of walking on the street and you walk by yeah. homeless. Yeah, right. Having you violence have to make done with to that. them. You have right. to make peace with it every single moment. And yeah. that, I find... Um, a terrific struggle. Yeah, me too. Thank you. 9-11 um, affected us all, and especially those of us who were in the Northeast or who had people directly involved or, you know, we're in Boston and New York where our families were, or worse, lost people. People from New Jersey lost a lot of people. And... Um, after that, I started to pay more attention to the news. I lived abroad mostly in retreats and monasteries, and I didn't have news in the 70s and 80s much. And we didn't have CNN and the web and other things, you know, in those days abroad in third world countries, in the Himalayas and so on, in monasteries and ashrams. So I got used to living like that and liking that. And then every once in a while, you'd get some news. You know, after a few months, you hear about Tiananmen Square or something. I was in Darjeeling and I heard about it and it seemed a million miles away even though it was just over the mountains and such a big worldwide event, for example. So after 9-11, I started to pay a little more attention to the news. I felt like responsible to know a little more about the news because I'm in a position of authority and I'm in front of the room and people are always asking me about stuff. And I hate listening, hearing so-called authority figures talking about stuff they don't know about because they're an authority in some other area. You know, let's ask the Hollywood actors about China and Burma. I mean, Richard Gere knows. That's his, you know, specialty. But the other ones? Brad Pitt, to his credit, said, I don't know. I'm just an actor. I was in seven years in Tibet. We filmed it in South America. That's what he said. <laughs> you know, good for him. I respected him ten times more after that. So... I started to pay attention to the news more. Oh, also needless to say, I had lived without TV and radio and, you know, English book novels and, you know, stuff. So I got used to that. And in a three-year retreat, we only got mail once a month. So I didn't even hear, you know, that kind of news from, like, the family and all. And then I started paying more attention to news, and I found it was, it was making me depressed. And it wasn't really making me depressed. I was getting depressed. I was feeling depressed about it. Because it was always the bad news. And it was like, where's the good news? Now, I understand if it bleeds, it leads. You know, I understand yellow journalism and muckraking or just general what sells papers. There's no, it's not going to sell papers if they announce even that somebody got fully enlightened in garrison last weekend. Who cares? <laughs> not to mention, you know, more good news. Plenty of good news one could report. You know, beautiful things going on in the world, right? From some birth, which is a beautiful, but nobody's going to report on that, to big beautiful things, but we don't hear about it. So I kind of, you know, learned a little bit about this since then. I've been on a lot of panels and 9-11 panels with other religious leaders of different faiths who will have different perspectives. So I've been thinking about this and going through this and in the media with my author career and stuff and spokesperson. And so I felt, feel like whenever I pay too much attention to news, it's kind of a down 
to talk technical, it's a downer. <laughs> but when I look, when I meet young people and I look into their eyes, I feel irrationally optimistic. So that's a great reminder. There's hope. And they have it, even if I don't. So I'm going to draft on them. I'm exaggerating, but you know what I'm saying? There's hope. Just like we had, I had in the 60s. I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And people would say, oh, you won't be able to do anything. And oh, you know, you don't have to go to Washington on a 20-hour bus ride and get tear gas. Let somebody else do it, you know? Or whatever. Or it won't matter. They'll never listen to you. They'll never end the war. Blah, blah, blah. Now look at, you know, how certain things are really filling our culture. Partly because of this incessant, youthful, innocent naivety that rushes in where angels fear to tread. You know, you can't turn around in America without finding mindfulness. In West Point and in, in, in you know, the Navy and everywhere. So... Things are happening. So whenever I see young people, I feel, not just see, but, you know, really feel, connect with, look in their eyes. It's a whole other story, and I try to keep that in balance with my own tarnished, aging perceptions and my own cynical awareness of the media and politics and corporate interests and what makes the world go round from a certain point of view. That could be depressing. So just like you feel like, you know, Toronto is a, whatever you said, there's a lot of overwhelmingly, but we all down here in the southern states, we think Canada is like the penthouse, green penthouse of America, and nobody has any weapons. So even if there's somebody like violent, the best they can do is like give karate chops. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, there's so many perspectives, even including the wrong ones, the stupid ones. Let's give room for those two. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now Hour. We very much appreciate your support and hope you will continue by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash suryadas and link to the donate button or go to the amazon.com link for all of your purchases. Namaste.